a call came through on the Monday. I was getting ready to go to book club. I saw it was Nicola's number and I went, oh, I don't know what she's calling me, but I, I will answer that call because it's Nicola from Harlequin. Even though I was just walking out the door at the time and she said, we had a special acquisitions meeting this afternoon. This virtually never happens and your book has got through and we'd like to offer you a deal. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to the August edition of the new release feature author at Rights for Women. I'm coming to you from Virginia, the van, the vintage van, and uh, I'm spending a fair bit of time in Virginia at the moment, I have to say, during lockdown. And apart from recording podcasts and back into recording the podcasts each week for Rights for Women, I'm actually working head down, bottom up on uh, my manuscript, trying to, to reach the end by the end of the month. But wherever you are, if you're in lockdown, I hope you're doing okay. And I hope that if you're a writer or a reader, that listening to Rights for Women each week might bring a little bit of sunshine into your lockdown life. If you're not in lockdown, wherever you are, fantastic. I hope that you're doing well. So on to today's episode. My guest today is Mary Lou Stevens. Mary Lou has worked as an actor, singer, radio presenter and music director in both commercial radio and at the ABC here in Australia. Now Mary is working as a novelist. The Last of the Apple Blossom was published by HarperCollins just a couple of weeks ago. Mary Lou is a fabulous supporter of Rights for Women, so I'm really, really happy to have her on the podcast. And I've kept this intro fairly short so that Mary Lou can tell us more about herself. Mary Lou, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you so much, Pam. It's lovely to be here. Such a pleasure. I I love your podcast. I love everything you do. And I love your caravan, Virginia. (laughs) I think it's such a great idea. I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty special little podcasting and writing studio I've got here. I feel very privileged to have it. And I have been escaping here quite a bit during lockdown, I have to say. How does it feel to have your debut novel out and to be actually sitting there holding it in your hand? It's a spectacular feeling. I remember when I received my author copies and I opened the box and I was like, there you are. There you, I have dreamt you into this world. I have lived with you for years and you're actually, oh, God, I'm going to cry. But you're actually. I know I'm getting goosebumps (laughs) listening to you. You're actually real and you're here because this book means so much to me. And I think up until that moment, even though the arcs had gone out and people were posting and all that kind of stuff, which was a whole new experience for me, I've never had that happen before Mm. because my last book came out eight years ago and it was a memoir. But, yeah, it was just this. Oh, wow, you're finally here. You made it. You made it because this is the fourth novel I've written and it's the first one to get published. So it's it's been a lot of writing years under the belt. And there it was. 
And also, to be honest, this huge sense of relief because it has been such a long road and it didn't really feel real until I opened the box and saw those books and it was like, oh, it's actually happened. It's actually real. Thank you. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. It's just so nice to hear, you know, the joy that that comes because I think so often we do get bogged down with the difficulties of writing and to be reminded of how special that is to actually have that finished product there and out into the world is really lovely. Oh, it was beautiful. And because this book means so much to me and because it terrified me for so long, I didn't know whether I had the capabilities to actually be able to tell this story. So for it to be done and for it to have found a publisher and go through all the processes and be in the world was like... Well, I can't wait <laughs> to find out more about how all that happened. But first of all, I did do a little bit of an intro about your life and, and how you got into writing, but only touched on the surface. So can you take us back in time and tell us a bit about the many different jobs and how you ended up getting to this point now where you are a, a published author? Well, it's interesting because in my previous life as a radio presenter, I interviewed a lot of authors and a lot of them had wanted to be writers since they were young and I didn't. I wanted to be all kinds of different things, mainly an archaeologist. <laughs> and, my, and, you know, my mum said, I'll come along and I'll cook for you and make sure you're okay while you go off on digs, you know, that kind of thing when I was young. But I went to a Stranglers concert when I was living in Sydney because um, I grew up in Tasmania, but most Tasmanians of my vintage, as soon as it's a legal option, you kind of leave the state. Okay. I came back time and time again. But so I was 18 and living in Sydney and the whole kind of, it was 1979 and the music scene was exploding with all this interesting new stuff. And I went to a Stranglers concert at the State Theatre and I heard this sound and I said to the punk sitting next to me, I said, what's that sound? And he looked at me as if I was a complete idiot and he went, that's the bass guitar. <laughs> and I just knew that that's what I really wanted to do. So that's what I did. I bought a bass guitar. I was completely hopeless at it, but I just persisted and played in bands for many years and absolutely loved it. And in between, I went to acting school at the Victorian College of the Arts because I'd always been acting since I was six years old and I was Mary in the Nativity play. <laughs> so I gave acting a red-hot go as well. But gosh, you know, as a writer, you get a lot of rejections. But boy, try being an actor. Mm. It's brutal. It is brutal. And playing in bands actually gave me some kind of control over what I did. So I wasn't writing books. I never even thought about writing books, but I was writing songs. Mm. And that thing of being able to write a song, rehearse it up with your band and go and play it that weekend at a gig was just wonderful to, to be in control of that creative process and have that happen. Whereas with acting, there are so many different layers of things that mm. actually have to happen and so many other people involved and machinations and all kinds of stuff before you ever get on a stage or on a screen. So playing in bands really, really suited me and I loved writing songs. And that thing, sometimes I would write a song and I would be playing it in the band or I'd listen to it back if we'd recorded it and I'd go, where did that come from? Mm. Did I actually write that song? And oh, wow. And will I ever be able to write another song? And will it ever be as good as that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I did that for a long time and I bounced between Hobart and Melbourne and Sydney playing in all kinds of bands. 
And then my last band broke up when I was in my mid 30s. And I was, I put everything into music or my money or my time or my love or my passion, absolutely everything. And I was in my mid 30s and I really thought that that band was going to crack it and we didn't. And I just was devastated when we broke up. I thought, I have no idea what I'm going to do mm. now, none at all. And someone I'd met who'd interviewed me many times for ABC Radio, he and I went out for lunch. And I said, I've got no idea, you know, I'm completely at sea here. I've been doing a series of just kind of casual, unskilled jobs to pay the rent. And I said, oh, that's, that's my future. And he went, you know what, Mary Lou, you should be in radio. And honestly, Pam, it was like this light bulb went off in my oh, head. Wow. It was plastic. I could feel it. It was like this light just went bing. And I said to him, oh, my God, I do want to be in radio. But I didn't know that. How did you know that? <laughs> and he said, I know radio and I know you and it's a really good fit. And from that day on, every single door opened. It was miraculous because being an actor, being a singer-songwriter, being a musician, you're constantly running up against brick walls, just constantly, constantly, constantly. But when I decided that, that radio was what I wanted to do, the path just opened up to me, you know, and there was even I got to a door, any door, and there'd be a doorman just opening it up and saying, welcome, come on in, you know, instead of the doors yeah. land in my face. And it was amazing and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I worked in commercial radio as a music director. So it was interesting coming from being a musician and playing in bands and trying to get our music on the radio to being on the flip side of being oh, a yeah. where you get to choose. Well, not so much because you have highly paid consultants and music calls every week and, you know, it's all about numbers for mills and burns and all that kind of stuff. So there's a bit of a science to it. But I still would, you know, direct the flow of the music according to the, the formula, the genre of the station. And I realised very quickly why we never got played on the ground. <laughs> Like, wow, this is such a business. And, and then I got a job with the ABC on the Sunshine Coast and just felt like I had won the lottery. It was funny. It was a very small crew back then. It's grown a lot since then. And we used to kind of throw some money in for a lotto ticket every week. And I'd say to the guys, I already feel like I've won the lottery. Oh, was that's lovely. Music director, presenter on air and living in paradise. It was just like, wow, yeah. It was great. Fantastic. You did that job for quite some time, didn't you? Yeah, over 20 years. And I'd done stuff in community radio prior. Mm -hmm. So, you know, radio has been part of my life for a while. And where did that yearning to actually write, first of all, in the memoir sort of arena come from? Oh, the memoir is interesting because I did my first 10-day um, silent meditation retreat and, quite honestly, it did change my life. I, I like to meditate but I've, and I've always looked at those silent long-term meditations and thought, oh, could I do it? Mm. Well, they, they had a sweep at work because I'm a talker and, and they didn't think I was going to make the 10 days <laughs> at all, not at all. But honestly, it was really interesting because you don't even have any contact. You're not, you're not supposed to look at anyone. It's just, as if you're just meditating on your own the whole time. And I actually found it very freeing. And I realised just how much I want to make a good impression or for people to like me or to, you know, be perceived as interesting. And all of that just falls away because you can't talk to anyone. 
you know, you can't even look at anyone. Mm. And so even though I just went through the whole gamut of emotions and flashbacks into my past and everything, which is in the memoir, it was also very, very liberating to be free of all of that. Although I must say that I went through a, a bit of paranoia, paranoia at some stage, which kind of went, whoa, because I thought everyone hates me. <laughs> oh, no. Because no one's talking to you and no one's looking at you. And we're such social creatures with all those cues that comes from voice and vision. And that was all taken away, but there were still people around who weren't looking at me, who, who weren't talking to me. And I just I went, oh, my God, they must all hate me. And, and the thing about meditation is to be able to um, go into that witness mind where you just observe your thoughts and it's just like, oh, look at that. You know, this is the way you're thinking and it's not actually true, mm. which has um, been very useful in my life because my mind does tend to race a lot. And so meditation for me does, doesn't stop me from thinking. It just slows me down enough sometimes so that I can think clearly. Yeah. But I honestly, I wanted to write that memoir because I used to love self-help books, but I would never do any of the exercises or do what was suggested. I would go straight to the case studies because they were stories and I loved stories. I think humans are just hardwired. It's in our yeah. DNA, this love of story. And so I would read the case studies and that's about all I would do. <laughs> and so when I had this massive change in my life because of this meditation retreat, I just went, well, this is kind of a case study. I wonder if anyone would be interested in it. So that's kind of what I did. And I was funny when people said, what are you writing? And I said, I, I'm writing about the, my, this first, because I've done a lot of them since then, this first silent 10-day <laughs> meditation retreat I did. And they went, a silent meditation retreat? You're writing a book about it? How could that possibly be interesting? <laughs> What are you writing about? Lots of blank I think, pages. <laughs> I think they were all pleasantly surprised when, uh, you know, it got picked up and it came out and the reviews were great. And, and it's really interesting because people found it really funny. And I said to my publisher, I, this is my angst, you know. <laughs> this, is, this is my kind of lit litany of, of failures and heartbreaks and all this stuff and people find it funny. And she went, yeah, that's one of the reasons we picked it up. It's funny. <laughs> I was quite taken aback because I didn't mean it to be funny. It's just the way my head works and people right. found it really funny. <laughs> How bizarre. <laughs> but I will just backtrack slightly because what happened is I started writing this book, the beautiful Monica McInerney, who we'll talk about a bit later in regards to The Last of the Apple Blossom, I'd interviewed her many times and we had really clicked because um, we're both from big families and neither of us have children of our own, but we're really hands-on aunties. So we kind of kept in touch and she wanted to read some of what I was writing and she loved it so much she sent it straight to her agent without even telling me and I get an email from her agent going, oh, I love this, what else have you got? Brilliant. And I was such a novice back then because it was the first thing that I had written and I sent this agent 50,000 words of first draft material. Okay. First draft, Pam. First draft. <laughs> no, never, ever, ever do that. <laughs> and she was been so excited and said, you know, don't sign with anyone else. And, I, and she got this 50,000 words of first draft and she just went, oh, nah, you've gone Oh, no. And she said to me, if you're going to write this, you have to be really, really honest. 
And I completely freaked out. I wasn't ready. I instead thought, I'm just going to write a really lighthearted novel. And so that's what I did. And then after quite a few years and a lot more meditation, I was finally ready to write that book. And it is. It's brutally honest. Um, wow. But I know, if someone gives you good advice, then, yeah, take it. And so that you also wrote and published a second memoir, didn't you? How to Stay Married. So Sex, Drugs and Meditation, the memoir that came out with Pam McMillan, it actually it has a happy ending. Well, it's it's about how meditation saved my job, changed my life, and helped me find a husband. Wow. So I was in my early 40s at this stage and I'd never been married. And I'd always run away from relationships. I was commitment phobic. And I think it was 10 days after I'd finished this 10-day silent retreat, I met the man that I would marry. It's this massive happy ending. And then I thought, it's actually hard being married. It's tricky. There's a lot more to it than I ever thought. And there's a lot of compromise involved. This is probably why I always ran away from it and why I was so terrified. Mm. You know, and being in my early 40s, I was pretty set in my ways. And I'm his fourth wife. He loves okay. being married. <laughs> but it was all <laughs> very nice to me. And, and we'd, we'd done this round-the-world trip with cabin luggage only. So we'd gone from the snow in Scotland to the tropics, you know, the humidity and all that kind of stuff. But with cabin luggage only, travelling really light. And I thought, well, that's a great metaphor mm. for how to stay married. So that one is set within the framework of our trip around the world and that has lots of flashbacks into how hard I found it to be married, to keep my fear. I'm going to cry again because, <laughs> honestly, I do experience a lot of fear and mm. being married just brought all of that up to the surface and I found it really, really tough. So all of that is in that book as a tissue. Yeah. Um, and so Pam McMillan had a look at it and they wanted me to change the title and I said fine because it was originally called Love, Death and Meditation because we, okay. we, we go through the death of my brother from alcoholism and mm. then my mother died pretty much of a broken heart. And so it was, you know, some really tough things mm. to get on. And, but they thought, oh, no, How to Stay Married is actually a better title. So... We changed the title, I changed the beginning and the end, and then it didn't get through acquisitions, which so often happens with books. Yes. Yeah. So I self-published it. I just put it out in the world. Oh, good on you. I didn't realise that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I just put it out there. I thought it's written, it's finished, it's, you know, it's gone through the editing process. It didn't get through acquisitions. But, hey, it's still a book. And that, Yeah, it's one of the realities of, of the publishing life, isn't it? You know, it can be a great product and... You pour your heart and soul into it. People can say they love it, but then if it if it doesn't get past the marketing gurus, usually it doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, it was such a huge shock, shock to me because with my um, memoir, the head of nonfiction loved it, the he the head of publishing loved it, and I thought I had a deal. But no, it has to go mm. through acquisitions, and other, you know, the whole team makes the decision. And I had actually had no idea back then. That, that was the way it worked. I thought yeah. when I got that call saying, I love your book, I went, hey, I've got a deal. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> just the first step. Yeah. So just... you, you had written uh, in the meantime that the other more lighthearted novel, after you've written the two memoirs, where were you at fiction writing by that point? 
So with the first novel, I had thought I had written the next bestseller. I had cast, you know, the actors who were going to play in the movie. <laughs> Kate Blanchett was in there. Yeah. <laughs> And then I thought, oh, I should have a manuscript assessment, you know, just so someone else can tell me how brilliant this book is. And so I had a manuscript assessment and it was like, oh, oh, I, I know nothing about writing. I don't know how to write. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I love this story, but clearly it's, it's not working. And so then I decided to work with her as a mentor. And so I think we did about 10 drafts together. And that was really my writing apprenticeship if you like. I don't think that book will ever see the light of day, but that's really how I learned to write. I mean, I've done Year of the Novel with Queensland Writers' Centre. I've done all kinds of different workshops and courses, uh, but that was really early on. So that was before I wrote or well, was brave enough to write Sex, Drugs and Meditation. So I, that's how I learned to write. And I had a writing group we'd met at an editing course through Queensland Writers' Centre. Mm. And two of them were actually doing Masters of Creative Writing. And they said, I think you've learnt more about writing, you know, with this one-on-one with a mentor than we have, you know, paying all these thousands of dollars for a Masters of Creative Writing. And, you know, that's not the case for everyone, certainly not. Yeah. Just, you know, in, in this instance. And so, you know, I learnt stuff about point of view and I was head-hopping, all, all, all the stuff that I had no idea about. Yes, but... I think that informed the writing of Sex, Drugs and Meditation. It certainly made it a better book, that's for mm. sure. Mm. And then tell us about how you ended up getting to apple blossoms, basically. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd written the second memoir. I had no idea what to do next. I knew I wanted to keep writing, though, and I had this novel that I'd learned to write with, my practice book. And someone said to me, oh, you should really write something that will sell. And I said, what's that? And they said, women's fiction. And I said, I've got no idea how to write that. And I was interviewing Fiona McIntosh, one of her many, many books. And she asked me how my writing was going. And I said, well, I've been told to write women's fiction. I have no idea how to do it. And she said, oh, you should come to one of my masterclasses. I didn't know she did masterclasses. (laughs) And I will teach you how to do that. You know, she teaches people how to write commercial fiction. Yeah. And so I went along to that and it was amazing it was astounding Fiona is a force of nature and she's incredibly generous to all her masterclass alumni amazing if we have time I would love to tell you a story of just how generous she is yes please we'll save that one up (laughs) and why she's one of the three women without whom this book would not exist but I actually even with all this fabulous knowledge and advice I still went completely off track for me and I wrote a couple of other books that weren't right for me, they weren't right for the market and never got anywhere. But with each one of them, I learnt. Mm-hmm. So when the idea for The Last of the Apple Blossom came roaring at me one very rainy afternoon, I had interviewed Monica McInerney for a live event in the morning mm-hmm. and we had talked a lot about grief and how grief informed her writing. Mm-hmm. And that very afternoon this idea came to me, a bolt out of the blue, which was you know, a book that started, a novel that starts on the on the day of the 1967 bushfires in Tasmania, Black Tuesday, a fire so fierce that within five hours over 60 people died and 7,000 people were left homeless. And I remember it because I was six years I was old. Going to, it was going to be one of my questions, yeah, because you write about the fire and the after effects of the fire so vividly that mm-hmm. I, I could tell from reading that that you had 
experienced that or were very close to it? Yes, so the the first few chapters from Catherine's point of view, so Catherine is really the main protagonist of this book. She's a young teacher at the school that I used to go to. She's teaching grade one and I was six years old. So all the stuff that happens at the school based on my memories and then she um, evacuates the kids to the last safe home on Mount Nelson and that was our home. So, you know, on this day where the sky was black and the sun was Mm. huge red, angry angry giant anyone who's been through bushfire the sun is just huge and red and so yeah a lounge room full of kids a kitchen full of worried mothers fathers and husbands up the hill fighting the fire with wet gunny sacks and garden hoses and no one knowing whether they'd have homes or fathers to go home to you know it was something you never ever forget yeah I can imagine Mm. So you got this lightning bolt yes. and then what What did you do? Did you just sort of then write the story right through? Did you stop and plot it out? How did the, that process work for you? Well, it was an idea that started on that day and then went through the demise of the apple industry, focusing on two orchards in the Huon Valley. And I... What did I what I do? What did I do? To be quite honest, I ran away. I was terrified. I I went, this book is too big, it's too sad. I I might have grown up in Tasmania, but I don't know anything about growing apples. I knew that people were still traumatized from the fires over 50 years later. Mm. There's still people, you know, who went through it. And I thought I actually can't do this justice. I don't know how to write this. I don't know how to go about it. And I actually went off on a writing retreat and had a massive breakthrough and there were many tears about that because I had been so scared mm. about writing it and I, and I finally had that breakthrough and then I was able to start writing it. So at that writing retreat, I just started writing scraps of the story. Right. I'd done some research into it because research is kind of safe. I think that's why I love research so yeah. much. It's a really happy place where you find all this stuff out, although a lot of the stuff that I found out broke my heart. And, yeah, there were lots of tears but it's still external, isn't it? You're not really tapping into that that part of you. Yeah. Yes, yes. So then to actually start writing it, and that was with Shelley Kennersberg, who does lovely writing retreats and, yeah, lots of tears, but I actually got some words down, some of which made it to the final book. And so after that, it was a lot easier. And because I had all the facts laid out because this is what happened and then this is what happened. So everything that that happens in this book as far as the Apple industry is concerned is based on fact. Mm. So it told a story of its own. It had a a story arc of of its own. So then I melded in these characters. I always had this idea of Catherine, the young orchardist. Well, she's not. She's a school teacher. She wants to restore the orchard to make it viable again because it's ruined in the fire. But her father, you know, it's the 60s and women didn't run orchards and he's very much against it. However, and this is not a spoiler because it's actually on the back cover (laughs) (laughs) that she, you know, rushes home to find the apple orchard destroyed, her childhood home in ruins and her brother dead. So her brother Peter, who was supposed Mm. to take over the orchard instead. And so she's going to take over, you know, for the memory of her brother and for all the love that she has for the land and this orchard that's been with them for generations. So she was always very strong. I did have a little minute where I thought I was going to do a dual timeline because there's a big secret in this book and I thought I could tell that story, you know, with the current day with the person who finds out about this secret and, and you know, all about the life that that involved. Yep. But to be quite honest, 
nothing interesting happened in in the modern timeline. <laughs> Everything interesting was happening. A historical one, right? Sixties and seventies, because there was just so much going on. You look back at that time, and everything was changing. Daylight saving came into Tasmania first because. Um, it's reliant, Tasmania is reliant on hydropower and there was a drought, so there wasn't enough water in the dams, so they brought in daylight saving to save power. You had the metric system coming in. We just had decimal um, currency yeah. come in. We had man landing on the moon. We had Woodstock. So music does play, and this is where my music history yeah, plays. Yeah, music does play in. a part in the story for sure. <laughs> yeah, because the late 60s, early 70s, the way music was changing and evolving, it was just massive. It was a big part of people's lives. And I knew that I wanted the new settlers or hippies um, included because they came to the Huon Valley in the 70s as well. So there was lots of change. I and can see, Mary Lou, why you were daunted by the story because <laughs> there is so much happening in it, you know, and, and like you say, this massive backdrop of what's happening in society and the changes taking place and to be able to incorporate all that into the, you know, the character's story and, and weave all that through the plot, it must have been a huge challenge for you. Yes, and it was. A lot of research, a lot of time spent in the Hobart Library, in the Hobart Reading Room with fabulous librarians, you know, digging me stuff out of the archives. And there, The National Library had a resource of apple and pear growers' oral histories and listening to them was fabulous. And then I had the Tasmanian Yearbook as well, which I could get, I could access online through Tas Libraries. And at the back, it has a summary of everything that happened in the world in that year. And it was just... Wow boggling <laughs> it's just boggling and so to be able to bring that in and just go everything was changing you know time space dimensions weight everything was changing it's just phenomenal mm. and and a very strong theme of the place that women were in at that time and how that changed and evolved over that period too yeah definitely that's a big part of the story isn't it so would you consider yourself a plotter or a pantser or a combination? Look, I am a combination. It's really interesting if you write historical fiction and I'm working on another one now. And, and so the events actually give you the plot in a way. I remember um, doing a workshop that Josephine Moon was taking on structure and it was the Save the Cat structure that she was talking about. Oh, yeah, about. yep. And there's that point where it's the false victory and in, and in this book, I went, oh, my, I know exactly what that is, you know. I don't have to invent it because it's actually part of the history that happened. That's the false victory. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting when you, when you do write around true facts, true history, is that often that, well, my very limited experience, <laughs> that, that will kind of give you the shape of the plot and then everything else in between are pretty much pants. Mm. <laughs> Great. So at what point did you enter into the, the um, mentorship with Monica McInerney? Well, I so at this stage I had written, this was my fourth novel, and I had spent a lot, a lot of money on learning how to write, a lot of money. And I swore that I was never going to spend any more money again on my writing. But with this book, and I think I was up to draft three or four, I just realised how special it was, how much it meant to me. And I thought, you know what, I actually am going to spend money because this book is worth it. I'll get a mentor or a manuscript assessment or something. And so I was looking at what was available 
and I um, was looking at the Australian Society of Authors Mentorship Program and I was looking down the list of mentors that were available and going, no, not a good fit, not a good fit. Monica McInerney? Monica (laughs) McInerney is available as a mentor? I went, what, what? So I emailed her. I mean, we're not in touch constantly or anything. I don't think we've been in touch for a while, but I emailed her and I said, I bet you have a waiting list as long as your arm, but when you put your application in, and this is for a, a paid mentorship, mm. um, they ask you to pick you, put your three top picks who you want as a mentor. And I thought, I only want Monica. It's the only mentor I want. So I don't want to apply if I can't have her, and I, well, I bet she's too busy. So I emailed her and I said, you know, are you available? Could this be a possibility? And she went, absolutely, Yes. And by the time that I went back to the ASA and put in my application, Monica had already contacted them. Oh, fantastic. Yep, I'm going to mentor her. And then she said, what draft are you up to? And I went four and she said, great, write two more drafts and then I'll read it. (laughs) She wouldn't look at it until six. Yeah. Yep, yep. And that then, must have been such an experience. I think the interview I did with Monica for Rights for Women, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, everything is a blur, but mm-hmm. it was such a fabulous chat and I know personally I got so much from it and I got really good feedback from people who would listened to it. She just really knows her stuff and she's so lovely. Uh, she's an incredible woman and really generous and really wise and she's a hard task mistress. She said, you know, you'll be doing another Four drafts, she said, really 10 drafts is, is where the book, you know, really starts coming together. And she was tough. She was tough and she was fantastic. So stuff like Peter's funeral, I had just mentioned um, in passing, well, not, I'm given you know, a little bit of attention, but it was written in the past as the plot mm. moved forward. And she went, you know, you cannot cheat your readers. We need to be there at his funeral. I mm. want that chapter in you know this is such a catalyst for what Catherine does we need to be there so so writing oh I'm going to cry again I'm sorry Pam but no no don't apologize no because my it's interesting what you put into your book and what you don't Mm. I'm going to turn to a hopeless mess but you know I remember when my brother died Mm. you know and so I wanted to pay tribute to that in a way and quite honestly I think that's one of the reasons I didn't want to write the funeral scene Mm. because it is heartbreaking when your brother dies so yeah Mm. oh god this is going to be the the crying episode but yeah (laughs) and other stuff she said I don't understand why this character would do this this is such a massive decision why would this person do that and so I told her you know we'd have whatsapp conversations mm. and I told her and she said you know it took me about 10 to 15 minutes to tell her why he would do that mm. she said oh my god now I totally understand but none of that is on the page okay none of that I want that all on the page so I went into the process I think oh look this book varied so much the first draft was 142,000 words at some point I got down to 103 I think by the time I got to the sixth draft that Monica read it was about 110. She also gave me a reading list, which I wasn't expecting. So that was okay. Kind of <laughs> She's very thorough. And she wanted really more nitty gritty emotional detail. She also wanted me to slow the end down. 
she said, you know, you've just hit us with the ending way too fast. We need to know how they got there. So I wrote an extra 30,000 words. I edited out probably another 15,000. So by the time I'd finished with Monica, it was about 117. And this, this is interesting because I think about the editing process that you actually edit, you cut stuff out, but it got longer with Monica. And then when I got a deal with Harlequin, each of the edits with Harlequin, it was just actually a little bit longer. So oh, it's, really? Yeah, it's about 122. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it is quite a chunky book, yeah. <laughs> I know. But every time I worked with someone, it got longer. You know, I think there's been a trend towards longer books in the last few years. I remember when I first was published in 2012, like Blackwell Lake was quite short. It was only about 72,000 words. And I said to my publisher, I can add to it, I can make it longer. And in hindsight, like if I wrote it again now, I would. But, but they said, no, no, and I remember that around that time, about 90,000 words, if you did any more than that and gave it to a publisher, it was a big no-no. But I've noticed lately that books are a lot chunkier and I think readers do want more. You know, they want to be immersed in the story and they don't like that feeling that it's, it, the story's been cut short. Yeah, it is interesting and I'm with you. I, when I started writing, it was 80,000 words, especially mm. for a debut author. They didn't, you know, really want any more than that. But, yeah, this book just kept getting longer. (laughs) Getting bigger. (laughs) Well, it is a big story, you know, like we were saying. There's a lot of different things happening in it. Yeah, and there's there's a lot to cover. And especially as so what happened with the Apple industry, England joined the common market in 73 and most of Australia's export market, a lot of it just disappeared because we had favoured nation status with England and that just went. And by that stage, a lot of countries around the world were primary producers and they were right. just undercut Australia. But yeah, so the Apple industry pretty much just got savaged and the government came up with a tree pool scheme to pay people to bulldoze their orchards. And that was one of the really sad parts about researching mm. and writing about that. Yeah, I'm sure. And then, and then, and then the hippies come in, which kind of lightens it a bit. But I had no idea, this is the thing about being a pantser, I had no idea how I was going to finish this book. I had, I knew because of the genre that I'm writing that it had to be a happy ending. Mm. And honestly, I had no idea what that was going to be. So I, I actually went off on another silent 10-day meditation retreat. Okay. Was this post the, the time with Monica? No, this, this was actually right. um, before I, you know, because I was at six drafts before it went to her, so I definitely had yep. the ending. But, yeah, I went off to this silent meditation retreat and this is the thing when you're not talking to anyone, when you're meditating over 12 hours a day and your mind will just come up with stuff mm. and some of it can be really useful. And so my subconscious just went, here you go, here's your happy ending. Great. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. 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 So let's just jump back to Monica. How, in the end of that process, were you at a point then where you were really happy with the story and thought, yeah, this is ready to go to a publisher? Yes, because she was. Mm. By the time I had written 10 drafts, she read the last draft and she said, thank you. You have written the book I wanted to read. Fantastic. And so I had her blessing. And if ever I felt insecure about this book, 
because it did get knocked back. I mean, I thought I was a shoo-in because I had Monica's blessing, but mm. not even that was true. She wanted me to find an agent. I got knocked back by six agents, I think. So this book still went through rejection. It was also rejected by Penguin for their own reasons, which, yeah, yeah. which, which is fair enough. So even though Monica thought it was fabulous, and, and honestly, Pam, that's what kept me going because I knew Monica thought it was a good book. So I just kept submitting. I just kept submitting. Oh, good on you. And and did, you of, have, did you secure an agent before a publisher or not? You went straight to a publisher? Yep. Yep. Well, none of the agents wanted it. <laughs> it's hard in Australia. It's such a small pool of agents too and a smaller market here as opposed to, you know, the mm. States or somewhere. Tell us about securing the publisher. How, how did that come about and, and how did that feel? You must have been over the moon. I pitched at the RWA conference last year, the virtual conference. I kind of just always had this inkling it was a Harlequin book. I thought it would just sit really well with them. So I pitched to Nicola Robinson and she said that she was interested. And because uh, I think, I don't know, with the pitching process with RWA, some some of the people that, that get pitched to, they want 1,500 words or a few chapters and a synopsis. So she'd already had that. And that, so that was before the pitch. And then she said, we'd like to see the whole thing. And I thought, yay. So and that was only last year. That was only in August last year. Yeah. But because it was that fast, they couldn't kind of fit it into the editorial program that was already going. So Nicola very generously did the first round and then it was able to be slotted in with their editorial process. Yeah, so what happened was she rang me. She said, we're interested. I'd like to take it to acquisitions. I said, please do. That would be lovely. And she said, okay, it'll be next Tuesday. And I I think this was on a Thursday or a Friday. And I went, okay, you know, I can hold it together for a few days. That's okay. And then she rang me on the Friday and said, oh, I'm really sorry. Something's come up and your book has been bumped. It won't be till Tuesday week. And I thought, I'm going to die before then of anxiety, <laughs> but, you know, I would just have to meditate more or something. And then I was getting ready to go to book club on the Monday. So the call was on the Friday saying it's been bumped for another week. And then a call came through on the Monday. I was getting ready to go to book club. I saw it was Nicola's number and I went, oh, I don't know what she's calling me, but I, I will answer that call because it's Nicola from Harlequin even though I was just walking out the door at the time. And she said, we had a special acquisitions meeting this afternoon. This virtually never happens. And your book has got through and we'd like to offer you a deal. Oh, so (laughs) exciting. You know, when I got a book deal for my memoir, I I got the news at work and people thought I was having a heart attack. I was just so beside myself. I was so, (laughs) And when Nicola told me the news, I just went, thank you. Thank you. It was this just enormous sense of relief because I had mm. spent so much time and work and money on this mm. book and it had been rejected by agents and it's just this huge sense of relief. It's like, yes, yes. And that thing about trusting your intuition, I always thought that Harlequin was the place for it. We talked about how some people kind of jump up and down and scream and shout and burst into tears and laugh and I went, yeah. Yeah, but at the moment, really, my main emotion is intense gratitude and relief. Well, I hope you took the champers to book club with you. (laughs) Well, I was running late for book club by this time, so I went along and I went, hey, I got a book deal, and they went, yay. And then the conversation moved on very quickly. Off to the book, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, I was able to tell my writing group, well, that was a whole different story. Yeah, I'm sure they were over the moon for you as well. It's such a fantastic story, Mary Lou. I love it. And I love the 
the way that you persevered and just talking to you. And I know from my own experience, there must have been so many times where you felt like, oh, forget it. You know, this is too hard. But I really believe that that perseverance is such a key element of of getting a book across the line, whether you you self-publish it or whether you do the trad thing. You know, it's the same motivation and, and push that you have to have. You have to believe in it yourself, don't you? I think that word believe is really apt. I say that writing is an act of faith, that you do all this work, you spend all this time, you invest this money, you do all this stuff, and you never know whether it's going to get published Mm. unless you're on a multi-contract deal and that's completely different. So you have to have faith and you have to believe. You know, Mm. Faith to me is believing in something that you don't even know is real. You know, that's faith. And that's what writing is for me. just having that faith and this book was such a dramatic change to anything I had written and I really feel as I had to write those other three unpublished novels to get the strength the gumption if you like and the skills to be able to write a story as Mm. big as I couldn't have without all that work that I'd put in before I don't think anything that you write is ever wasted no absolutely not And when Nicola picked this book up and she said, oh, you've written other novels, anything that we might be interested in? And I went, no, no, no. They're just practice books. I went off on tangents. I went down wrong tracks. I had a lot of fun writing. I learned a lot, but no. So we've touched on different elements of the book as we've been chatting around all this whole, you know, the ideas and inspiration and publication. And we mentioned that the two main characters you have, Catherine, who is the school teacher you talked about, who is in the classroom at the school when the fires break out, and the other woman in the story is Annie. So can you just tell us a little bit about Catherine and Annie? We have the, the two narratives from, from both women. It's also Mark. So maybe just tell us a little bit more about the book itself. Well, it is my my love song to Tasmania, to a way of life long gone. And I, Tasmania was the Apple Isle, but there are very few orchards left now. And it does tell the story of Catherine, a young school teacher who rushes home to find that disaster, really. Her best friend and neighbour, Annie, she's a bit older. She's the mother to six children, a much-wished-for baby girl who's very, very young at the beginning of the book, Mm. uh, five sons. (laughs) And she is from money. She's from Sandy Bay in Hobart and she's from money, but her family have um, cut her off because she got pregnant to Dave Mm. when she was young, just finishing school. They fell in love. She got pregnant. And so she went off to be an orchardist's wife and the parents were like, oh, you know, if you'd married someone, an old family from wheat and sheep, it would have been fine, but an orchardist, no. So Mm. they totally cut her off. And so they're on neighbouring orchards. Annie's orchard isn't burnt as much as Catherine's. So they're able to continue. And Mark is there. He's escaping um, his life in Melbourne. He has his young son, but his wife has gone missing and nobody knows where she is. And during this time, you know, Catherine is grieving her brother, her younger brother, Mark's young son, Charlie, is motherless. And because she's a school teacher too, and she does end up quitting her, her job, much to her father's disgust and dismay, to help the orchard get back on its feet, she actually becomes really close to Charlie and through Charlie becomes close to Mark. Now, Annie is really kind of, she's anti-Mark. 
he's staying on their property in a picker's hut. He's helping get the orchard back together, but she doesn't want him there. So she sees this growing relationship between Catherine and Mark through the conduit of his son, Charlie, Mm -hmm. as a threat, as not good news. And it's a very small community. So this man is married. His wife's gone missing, but he's still married. And so everyone misconstrues their relationship and casts all kinds of aspersions and people try and keep them apart. But it is, so there's this real love story that runs through as well. There are lots of false starts and hiccups and things like that along the way. And we see these through two friends through many emotional ups and downs as well as the um, ups and downs of the industry and bureaucracy mm. and economics and all that kind of stuff. And there is a stonking great big secret as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And I have seen it described as a saga. And I think that word fits it really well because it is such a big story and it has got all those ingredients, you know, with the family and the friendships and like you say, the secret, but then this massive backdrop of of what's happened. Yeah, it is a family saga. That's what I, that kind of took me by surprise. I was calling it late historical and family saga. And I went, oh, yeah, it is. Because there's Catherine's family, there's Annie's massive family. We see her sons grow up, leave home, all that kind of stuff. Because it starts in 67, but it goes over a period of 10 mm. years and it jumps into the 80s and then to the present day. So we see a lot of how families change and grow and the relationships between friends and neighbours and all that kind of stuff in a very small community. You mentioned before about Fiona McIntosh being one of the three women along with Monica. I'm interested to hear the third, but what was your little Fiona McIntosh story you were going to tell us? I might end up crying again. Um, (laughs) Get the tissues. This is the thing about Fiona. You do her masterclass and she would just champion you for the rest of your writing career. And I subscribed to her newsletter and I'd always had this fear in the back of my mind that someone else was writing this book. And that's some of the feedback I've had is, why has no one ever told this story? Mm. But, you know, kept on going, kept on going, and nothing popped up. And then Fiona, because I subscribed to her newsletter, she sent out a newsletter last year, and it had lots of apple recipes in it. And I emailed her back and I said, oh, I love these apple recipes because I've written a book set in the Huon Valley about orchardists and a female orchardist. And, and she emailed straight back and went, I'm writing a book set in the Huon Valley about oh a my God. orchardist. And honestly, Pam, my heart just sank and I thought, there it is. That is yep. that's the end of my book. That's It's completely sunk. You've got Fiona McIntosh with her massive history and all her bestsellers and you've got me a totally unknown novelist with you know a book that may or may not be good who knows at this point and I thought well no one's gonna want my book that's the end of that and we kind of had a bit of back and forth and she was writing in an earlier time period and I got really interested in her book and I was like you really have to write this book I want to read it because I'm so invested in the orchards of the Huon Valley And then she came back and said, you know what, I'm going to put this book aside. I'm not going to write this book. Oh, my goodness. (gasps) She'd already pitched it to Penguin. They'd said they loved the idea. She, you know, was doing the research. Because she loves to set books set overseas, but she couldn't. Mm. So she was, you know, looking at 
in Australia because you can't get overseas to do the research. And she said, no, this book is really important to you. It's your history. You grew up in Tasmania. This book means the world to you. I, I can see that. And, and it does. It does mean the world to me. She said, I'm going to step aside. Oh, wow. That is amazing. <laughs> and that generosity, it's still, uh, it blows me away to this day mm. that Fiona would put a, a book aside so that the last of the apple blossom could shine. Yes. And, and I, I said, I said wow. And she said, look, that's okay. I can, write an, I can write another book. I will write another book. But this is part of your heart, part of your soul, part of your childhood, your upbringing. It's in your cells. It's in your bones. It's in your blood. I know. Oh, let's, wow. let's, let's get your book out there yeah. and let's see it shine. And she really does. She wants everyone who does her masterclass to shine. Yeah, she's a fabulous supporter of Australian writing, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Yeah. She really is. And yeah. that's what I've found um, with the writing community. I mean, that generosity just blew me away. Monica certainly went above and beyond with me with The Last of the Apple Blossom as mm. well. And is she's also incredibly supportive to other writers. And that's what I've found is that other writers are so supportive of each mm. other. It's, it's really beautiful. You do feel as though you're part of a community. Yeah, it's fabulous. And like you say, I think RWA is a, a great place to find that support. And, and I do think that the online network and, and increasingly, you know, in the last 12 months, that's become very important, hasn't it? But people are really generous and kind online too. Yeah. And it's important, you know. Whenever I get a kind of a bit introspective or a bit kind of antsy, I think, how can I be generous today? I know. Mm. How can I actually give someone else something instead of thinking it's all about me all the time? <laughs> Yeah, it does get you out of the doldrums, I think, when you, you spin it around. So who was the third woman? Have we, have uh, we already talked about the third woman? No. I call her my apple angel. She's a female orchardist in the Huron Valley. And so I knew I needed to find a female orchardist. I needed to pick her brains. I needed to find out everything about it from her point of view. And it was uh, pretty tough because female orchardists are very far and few between and I was in a very limited geographical area. And there aren't many apple orchards anymore. But I found Naomi Clark Port, who's a sixth generation orchardist. Her family started the first apple orchard around Franklin in the Huon Valley. So some of the trees in her orchard are 160 years old. It's just amazing. Wow. And I had already done a whole lot of research. I had three pages of questions and I rang her out, out up out of the blue. I, I'd found her because she had been Tasmanian Rural Woman of the Year. Um, quite a while ago, but that's how I actually found her. And rang her out, out of the blue and I said, can I pick your brains about growing apples? And she went, yeah. And so then I started on this big list of questions. <laughs> I don't think she had any idea what she was in for. And she actually laughed when I was about halfway through the questions and said, Mary Lou, you're not going to need half of this information. You probably won't even need a third of this information in your book. And she said, you know, when are you coming down to the Huon Valley? I'll take you on a tour of my orchard, the packing shed, the cool store. I'll take you on a tour of the Huon Valley. And I will line up interviews with orchardists who were around in the area that you're writing in, around Wattle Grove, just near Signet, and we'll sit down with them and we'll talk with them. And, I, and she was fascinated to hear their stories too. So it, that's what happened. And I said, why are you being so generous? You don't know me from a piece of soap. And she said, because you didn't ring up and just say, tell me about apples. 
You had already done so much research. I knew you were serious and I knew this was important to you and I wanted to help you with it. And she was incredibly generous. We had an amazing time down the Huon Valley talking to these old orchardists and their stories, a couple of their stories have actually made it into the book because they were too good not to. Just lovely, lovely people. So she's about the same age as me. She remembers the fires. Yes, she was living on the orchard, but she was too young really at that stage to be working in the orchard. So she wanted me to be able to talk to people who were working in the orchards, pruning their trees, and you know, doing the grafting doing the tilling and the hoeing around the trees and all that kind of stuff, the day-to-day stuff that does make it into the books, that Mm. gives it a genuine sense. Yeah, gives you that really specific detail, doesn't it, and authenticity. That was really one of my big fears, that I wasn't going to be able to do the orchardist justice and everything that they went through. And I received some feedback recently from a 76-year-old woman who lived through all these events, um, whose grandparents had an orchard down the Huon Valley, and she went, yep. You've done us proud. You got it right. And I was like, oh. There were tears, Pam. Surprise. I'm surprise. sure there were. And and more relief, I'm sure. <laughs> Which would bring me to my next question. And and I think that that story about your, you know, Apple Lady is so beautiful. How has the reception been in general to the book? It's been wonderful. It's been overwhelmingly beautiful. And especially from people in Tasmania. You know, saying mm. we lived this life, we know these people, we know this area, and grown men reading this book, which I wasn't expecting, right? And and crying, you know, getting in touch with me, and so I'm not the only one who cries a lot. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, they're in tears reading this book because it brings back stuff, it connects them back to that time and place. Mm. And for people who didn't live through it, you know, who aren't Tasmanian, the feedback has just been astounding. I'm so incredibly grateful for their generosity. Well, there's one thing we haven't touched on, Mary Lou, and that we'll sort of have tangentially, I guess, but you did write a blog for the Rights for Women blog page for me, and that was on this whole idea of being a late bloomer. You know, you've had your first novel published in your 60s. And I had my first novel published the year I turned 50. So, yeah, it's quite special, isn't it? And, I mean, it's always special when you have a book published. But can you talk a little bit about how that has been for you and and that whole idea of doing something in, you know, slightly later life that is such a big deal? It's interesting. I... Look, I don't think I would have had the maturity as a writer or as a person to write this book when I was younger, but... It's, it's an interesting one because when you get to this age and the grey hair starts coming in and there's part of me that when I look at younger people, I think, oh, this is your world now. This is this is for you to actively be in. and, and blah, blah. But to be able to still make a contribution, oh, God, I feel like, you know, I sound like I'm 102. But <laughs> to still to have this creative blossoming, if you like, I you know, I was writing when I was working. And I actually took six months' leave without pay to write my first novel, saved up my money and did that because I really wanted to find out whether I could write a novel, whether I could finish one, and after I'd done that, whether I could write another one. But there are all these other pressures on you. So there is this beautiful thing about being an unpublished author is that you can take your time and you can go wherever you need to go and Mm. do as much research and work as you need to do. 
So, yeah, I'm retired, I'm 60, and I take the time I need to write these books. There are a lot of people my age who might think that they've missed their opportunity or that their time has passed or mm. the world only is interested in young people, you know, all the, the grants and awards for young writers, you know, make it feel like it's true. I'm proud of the fact that I'm a de debut author at 60. It feels good. It mm. feels right. There's a part of me in this book that is in living history that I remember and I couldn't have done that if I wasn't 60. And I have had quite a bit of feedback from older women saying, oh, thank you. I know you've made me think that I can do this too. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important to give people hope. It's very inspiring. And mm. you are working on another novel now, Mary Lou. Is that anything you can give us a little glimpse into or you prefer to keep that under your hat? It's another story that absolutely terrifies me. <laughs> I don't know why I do this to myself, ma'am. I don't know why. But it's <laughs> I have to be so deeply emotionally invested. I know that I wrote those three novels and they were fun, the ones that didn't get published. And I, it was a hoot, you know, and there was research involved, but it was kind of light and fun. And, and I love those books myself, I do. And, but they didn't, they didn't work and they didn't work for me. So I need to really be quite heavily emotionally, very heavily emotionally invested in a book. And I also need to find its deep melancholy heart mm. and so I was having all kinds of trouble with this next one I'm writing I've done all the research oh, I had a fabulous time doing the research I interviewed so many people and I found it hard to write I mean I got it you know COVID happened lockdowns got a publishing deal da 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 da, da all this stuff was happening and I was quite distracted but it wasn't until I really found the deep melancholy heart of this next book that I went okay I can write this now because originally it was going to be a, a girl's own adventure about a really quite major event, but now it's it's changing to something that gives me the emotional grunt to be able to do the work that's necessary to write this book. And, you know, it, it may work, it may not. It's writing as an act of faith. I have no idea. And I think, like you say, it, I think we all find the thing that really is the core of who we are in terms of telling the story and and we all find, you know, our niche in terms of the types of stories that we want to write. It can take some time to find mm. that, but you know when you've made that connection with a story or an idea and, and that's the thing that's going to drive, drive you to get to the end. <laughs> yes, because it is a very, very long journey with many, many, many drafts. Mm. So. For me, I need that kind of emotional connection to get me through. What would you say to uh, people out there, particularly women, aspiring authors or who have always thought really want to write that book but there's something holding me back? What advice would you Look, if, if you want to write a book and something's holding you back, that will always be fear and I have lived with a lot of fear of writing has been quite obvious during this conversation. <laughs> And one of the best pieces of advice, and this comes from Fiona McIntosh. So I already had a memoir out there before I went to Fiona's um, masterclass. And it's not cheap doing Fiona's masterclass. Mm. It's worth every cent, but it's not cheap. And it was in Adelaide. So there was travel costs and there was accommodation costs. So we're sitting in this room in a U-shape. Fiona's at the front. And... We're all these kind of excited authors, 
Ooh, I know it's a masterclass, so we're a little bit along the journey. And the first thing she says is, the world does not need your book. <laughs> Ouch. And I'm sitting there outraged because I'm already published. I've got a memoir out there. Of course the world needs my book. What I write is important. And she said, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. The world does not need your book. And I thought, I paid all these thousands of dollars to be here. You know, I was expecting to be told I was special and my book was fabulous and my writing was great. And, and she just <laughs> said, nobody cares. And I really didn't understand it. She did say, the less I care, the better I write. And I thought, I don't think that's true because her research is meticulous. You know, she does everything she possibly can to make the, a book the best book it can possibly be. So I thought, hmm. It wasn't until I was writing a novel and I got stuck and I couldn't work out where to go next with this. And I remembered nobody cares. And it just completely freed me up. I'd got myself twisted up in such a circle of frustration mm. and fear that I couldn't actually write. I couldn't work it out. My head wouldn't work properly. I remembered nobody cares. And it's like this weight just went off my shoulders. It's like, well, if nobody cares, I can write whatever I like. And I just started writing again. It was amazing. I got through this block and from time to time when I do get myself all twisted up in my head, if I'm lucky enough, I will remember nobody cares and that really helps me with my fear about writing. It's like I remember nobody cares and this weight goes off but I still have that emotional pull the kind of serious stuff going on in my gut. Mm. But it just frees me up. I think fear, because I've experienced it so much myself, fear just stops us dead. It's not useful. It's boring. It keeps us stuck. And if nobody cares, works, as it has for me and it does for Fiona McIntosh, then make it a little mantra. We want to be invested in our books. We want to think everybody cares. And when you finally get it out in the world and you discover people do care, that's fabulous. But in the writing of it, I can't get too kind of caught up in the, in the future of what's going to happen with this book. It's like for now when I'm writing it, this book actually doesn't exist. The world does not need my book. Nobody cares. Just write. Mm. Yeah, it's fabulous advice, and I think very important in that that drafting and revision stage. You know, before you get to the end, just to keep that in mind. I yeah. love it, hmm. Mary. We could talk all day. I am absolutely convinced. It's been so lovely chatting to you. Could you tell everyone where they can find you online, and the book is out, and and where that might be available? Yes, so I was actually able to go out and see my book in a bookshop for the first time yesterday. Yay. My heart goes out to everyone who releases books in lockdown. It's tough and it's heartbreaking. So it is in bookstores, it's in major retailers, it's online everywhere and that's exciting. That's just, that's really lovely. And I'm at all the Ws, marylouestevens.com.au and Instagram. Oh, gosh, what am I? Mary Lou writes, I think. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and on, on Facebook and a Facebook page as well. And on Twitter, which is Twitter's an interesting place, but there is a massive writing network on Twitter. There is actually. And, and I've been neglecting Twitter, I have to say, lately. I was right into Twitter 
quite some time back and then lately I've been more onto Instagram. But every time I pop into Twitter, I think, yeah, this is good. There's lots of interesting chat on here. And and when events got cancelled and my book launch has been postponed and going to Tassie is hopefully still on the cards but much later in the year, the support on Twitter was lovely. I mean, Twitter can be a very unhappy place where people mm. argue with each other all the time, but the writing community on Twitter is incredibly supportive and so people started tweeting about my book and saying another author, you know, affected by lockdowns and let's, let's support her. So that community is beautiful as well. Mm. I do spend more time on Instagram and Facebook, but I make sure I check into Twitter every day and and I support another author, tweet about what they've done, tweet a review I've written, that kind of thing, and just plug in just a little bit. Great. I love it. Well, thank you for for being my guest on Rights for Women. It's been lovely to have you and I do appreciate your support of the podcast. It's been really nice because I know you've been quite a long time listener and so to actually have you on the the Convo Couch is very special. I feel like we're friends, Pam, because I've watched (laughs) so many of these and listened to them and I I love what you do. I absolutely do. I know I've had a long time in radio and interviewing is a real art and you have such a genuine warmth and connection and ask lovely questions. It's, yeah, it's the connection. It's really important. Thank you. It's nice of you to say that even though I made you cry. (laughs) 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 Well, all the best with the last of the apple blossom and with the writing of the new one too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great to chat. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.